0: Rocky Peak, It's great to be with you again. My name is Michael and I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm looking forward to that, to meeting you in person. We're gonna be going to our time of teaching in just a minute. I hope that you've already downloaded your message note sheet, you're all ready to go. But before we do, I have an important announcement. You know, here at Rocky Peak, one of our core values is what we call listen and follow. And we, we believe that God has a vision for every church And that our job as leaders is not to create a vision and then ask God to bless it. That our job is to receive the vision from him and then carry it out. And you know, over the last few weeks, obviously we've been uh, praying, Uh, I've been fasting some, just seeking the Lord. What does it look like? What's the next step for us as a church in terms of we move into uh, August, as we move into the future in this kind of COVID season? And uh, this last week, I felt like the Lord just really spoke to me. I talked to our leadership team, talked to our elders, but really kind of out of the blue gave us the next step. And I'm very uh, excited to announce that to you. And so in a nutshell, what this is, I felt like the Lord was calling us to a month of worship and fasting and prayer. Uh, later on in the month of August. So let me explain how it's going to work. So what's going to happen is that uh, two weeks from this weekend, I'm going to be bringing a special message. So not next weekend, but the following message uh, weekend. I'm going to bring, bring a special message called Unleashed. And uh, we're going to be talking about what does it look like to pursue the Lord uh, for the future uh, as a church with fasting and prayer and worship. And then that week, we're going to kick off a series of 12 meetings on our campus in the month of August in the subsequent four weeks. So here's how it's going to work. So the week of the 8th and 9th. Uh, I'm gonna be giving this special message to kick off this season of prayer and fasting. And then that week on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday evening, we're going to host an encounter here. Now they're gonna be outside. They're gonna be on the kind of behind the worship center on the large uh, asphalt area. Uh, And we're going to have three of them that begin the exact same event. We have room for about 300 to 500 people, we're estimating, in a kind of socially distanced way. So we're going to be outdoors. What we're going to do is invite you to come out and experience kind of worship and the word and prayer with us as we kick off the month. So the idea would be that you would just pick one of the three nights. This is a way to get our whole church, everyone who wants to, on campus. And then the following three weeks... Uh, we're gonna be uh, opening up our campus every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. We're gonna be kicking off the evening with some worship, uh, and then we're going to be uh, setting you free to pray uh, in small groups and to do prayer walks on our campus. Now you say, well, what are we praying for? Well, you know, in scripture, when you fast, you fast in times when you need direction. You fast in times when you, uh, of crisis, and you fast in times of repentance. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be kind of focusing on three major prayer concerts. First of all, we want to seek the Lord for direction for our future. What does it look like opening up our campus for weekend services again? When to do it, how to do that, what does that look like? But even more than that, what we're seeking the Lord for is clear direction on what does it mean to be the church of Jesus in this season of COVID, it's unprecedented time. We feel like we have to change some things up. What does that look like? Uh, Secondly, we wanna pray for our nation. Right now, we're in a culture that's coming apart. It's a time of chaos and confusion. And we just wanna pray that God would have mercy on our nation, that he would send a spirit of repentance and that spirit of repentance would start it with us as a church. What does it look like to be the church of Jesus in these times of confusion, to be a salt and light in the world? And then the third thing we wanna pray for uh, as we uh, move forward is just for the advancing of the kingdom. I don't know if you know this, but historically in times of social unrest, in times of chaos and confusion, these are often times when people are looking for answers to their fear, to anxiety, to uncertainty, and they're open to the message of the gospel. And so we want to be praying that God would use this season in our country and in our church to bring many people to Christ. And what does that look like for us as a church to partner with it? And so we're gonna be coming together over these four weeks, 12 times to pursue him. Now, what I would suggest is especially in these three final weeks where we gathered together for prayer and worship on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday nights, that when we do that, that you would come as a life group. It'd be perfect, like if you're a Wednesday night life group during the life group season, come as a life group on Wednesday night, every night for those three nights, so that you're with us at least once a week. And then on top of that, we're also going to be fasting all month. So for the last few weeks, I've been fasting one or two days a week. And I felt like God was calling me to invite you to join me as we go before the Lord to see him, that you would uh, join me in fasting at least once a week, maybe just one day a week for those four weeks as a church together we could pursue God together. So I'm very excited about this. We're in a series on spiritual warfare. When it comes to spiritual warfare, prayer is one of our greatest weapons. So we wanna go before him, we wanna catch his vision for our church, and we wanna join him in that vision so that together we can unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers so we will be getting more information out this just happened in the middle of this week kind of out of the blue and so we are still catching up uh, creating all the PR all the the uh, kind of the website sign up things uh, these will be like covid friendly relationships in the sense that we are uh, events that we will you'll, you'll sign up for these uh, we'll, we'll be doing social distancing and all following all the protocols to make sure that you and your family and our community stays safe so I wanted to let you know that We're very excited about that. Invite you to begin praying for that and preparing for that. And we'll get more information to you through social media, email, and so on as soon as we have it. All right. So we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so hopefully you've downloaded the message note sheet. You're ready to go. But if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. Let's go pray and let's jump in. God, we're just so excited to be here in this season. Uh, It's such a challenging season to be coming underneath your leadership as our resurrected king. And that we would be learning how to be strengthened in your mighty power and to put on the armor of God so that we can take our stand. And God, as we get ready to enter into this season of really not just talking about spiritual warfare but entering in with prayer, with worship, with uh, fasting, We pray you'd be preparing us, and even today, God, you would begin to open our mind in new ways to what it means to put on the full armor of God and to take our stand. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today um, in the spring of the year, and the year is the year nineteen hundred. And they've just survived a violent storm as their ship has left the coast of Africa and sailed across the Mediterranean towards Europe. And on the way, they've been blown off course. And because of the violence of the storm, they've, found they've stopped here at this small island off the southern tip of Greece. And as the weather is clear now, and the water is just beautifully crystal clear. The captain decides to send down one of their divers. They're a commercial ship. He wants to send them down to the bottom of the sea to see if there are any sponges there that would be marketable for harvesting. And so the diver suits up. He puts on his copper helmet. He puts on his full canvas suit. He gets his airline and he goes down, descends 180 feet to the bottom of the ocean floor. And when he gets down there, though the, it's darker there than on top. The, the water is still clear and he can see And as he peers through the darkness, what he sees scares him to death. And so he quickly pulls on the line and they bring him up. When he gets up, he has this incredible tale that he's seen these skeletons of half-buried horses protruding up through the sand in the bottom of the ocean floor. And the captain, the sailors think he's crazy. He's gotta be seeing things. The carbon dioxide has gone to his head. But he's insistent, he knows what he saw. So the captain finally says, I'm going down myself. And he suits up and he goes down. And when he gets down there, he discovers not only the skeletons of the horses, but it's what else that he discovered that would change his life. Well, today we continue this journey, this series that we've been in the last uh, five or six weeks, called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. And uh, if you're new, I wanna welcome you. Uh, This is a series, as the title suggests, about spiritual warfare. And one of the lessons that we've learned is that when we come to Jesus, we cross over an invisible line, we cross kingdoms, and we enter into a a new level of spiritual warfare. And that, that spiritual warfare for the life of the believer is not just an occasional event, it's more than a, uh, just a kind of a sidebar experience of the Christian life that it really in many ways defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so throughout this series, we've gotten to our key passage. It's in Ephesians chapter six, the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where Paul says that his hey, followers of Jesus were in a spiritual battle that the enemy is very real. He's smart, he's brilliant, He's strategic, he's powerful. And then if you wanna win, the good news is we can win, but if you wanna win, we have to press in, we have to tap into the power of the resurrected king who has conquered the powers of darkness through his death on the cross, and we have to put on the full armor of God. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, here's how you put on the full armor, and he lists out seven pieces of armor or weapons that we need to put on or pick up if we want to win this battle. And if you were last week, we began to look at the first piece of equipment, which which Paul calls the belt of truth. And today we want to explore that more. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Spiritual Warfare, The Belt of Truth, Part 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's open up and we're going to go back to this key passage in Ephesians chapter 6. So in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we'll just hit it again quickly. In verse 10, Paul says, finally, and you know, as I come to the end of this letter, I'll be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, the power of the resurrected king. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the, uh, the devil's schemes, his methodias in the Greek, his methods, his strategies, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, and therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your uh, be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. so stand firm then because this first piece of equipment with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And so if you were here last week, we learned that the reason that Paul starts with the belt of truth is because in this spiritual battle, one of the things we learned last week according to Jesus is that Satan's primary weapon in our life to attack us is deception. And therefore, our first piece of armor needs to be truth. But if you were here last week, we learned that it's not just truth in a personal sense, just not just my personal truth with God. It's a, it's a full-bodied truth. And I, and I talked about the three sides of truth. In fact, there on your note sheet, you have this diagram uh, this, uh, uh, this, this triangle with spiritual truth in the middle, and we'd have the, we talked about the three sides, the, the personal side, the philosophical, big picture, uh, worldview side, and then down below the doctrinal truths about who God is, who we are, and the path to life. And what we learned last week, if we want to win the battle, if we want to be transformed, if we want to become like our creator, that we have to learn to win the battle for truth at all three sides of this triangle. And so today what we're going to be focusing on is this, the philosophical side, this worldview side. And so to get at this... Uh, I want you to turn with me to a very important passage of scripture. In fact, in my mind, it's one of the most important passages of scripture for us to understand as followers of Jesus uh, of kind of how big picture truth works. And the passage is in Romans chapter one. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, The Dimmer Switch. And we're gonna be looking at Romans uh, 1, 18 through 32. So let's go ahead and turn there. And so let me set the stage. So in in Romans his letter to to Romans Paul is writing to him. he's explaining the opening three chapters, why the human race is such a mess, why we're under the judgment of God. And what he says is it doesn't really matter whether you're kind of a, a good kid or a wild child or whether you're a religious person, that we've all rebelled against the king in our own way. We've all created high treason against our king and, and therefore we're under judgment, we're under condemnation. And so he starts in chapter one by bringing his case against the general Gentile world, right? The non-Jewish world. And he says that the reason we're in such a mess is because as a race that we have rejected the truth about God that's revealed in creation. That's the core sin of the race. So let's see what he says and what uh, what that sin, that core sin, where it leads us as a race. So we'll pick it up in verse 18. So he says the wrath of God, uh, sort of the, the anger, the judgment of God, is being revealed from heaven. Now, catch that. He does not say the wrath of God will one day be revealed at the end of time, though that also is true. What he says is right here, right now, that when we rebel against God, there's a judgment that comes in our life, and we begin to experience the results of that rebellion. And so he says, "The wrath of God is being revealed right here right now, from heaven, against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people, who catch, who suppress the truth by their wickedness." So we're going to see this time and time again, this is the core sin of our race, that we reject the truth that God has revealed, because we don't like what it reveals or what it requires. And he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. So the question is, how has God made the truth about himself plain? And he says, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul says that God has revealed himself in creation, that when you look at creation, when you see its brilliance, its beauty, the complexity, the power, the creativity, the goodness of creation, he said that it's obvious that there's a creator, but rather than embracing that reality, we rejected that truth because of what it required. And he goes on in verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, worshipped him, nor gave thanks to him. But catch this, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were, what? Yeah, they were darkened. I want you to underline that, futile and darkened. And he said, catch although they claim to be wise, and this is what we do, right? We're so wise, we're so sophisticated, we're so advanced. He says, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. And the word for Greek there is, is the word, like where we get our word moron from. And he says, and they exchanged the glory of this immortal God that we just talked about for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So in Paul's time, of course says, the Gentile world worshiped pagan gods and the idols that were touch points of connection, spiritual touch points Uh, It's like spiritual uh, hotspots to connect with that God. And usually the the Greco-Roman gods were in the form of human beings. You know, Apollo and uh, uh, Dionysius and and, uh, Aphrodite. Uh, The Egyptian gods, they often, their gods were in the form of animals. And he says, and therefore, because of this, they've rejected the truth. God basically says again and again, therefore, Right? because they rejected the truth, um, God's gonna say, okay, you don't want the truth, I'll let you go, I'll let you go after a lie and suffer the consequences that come from that. And so what we see, we're gonna see throughout this passage is one of the most important spiritual principles in all of life, and for me, it may be the very most important, and I call it the dimmer switch principle. And what we're gonna see in this passage is that when we reject the truth, about who God is. We reject the truth that God reveals to us in our life. That when we reject the truth and we turn away from the truth, it's like the light goes out. It's like the dimmer switch gets turned down. On the other side, when God is revealing new truth and we step towards the truth, that truth gets turned up. And Paul here, this is a great illustration. As we rejected the truth about God, Our foolish minds, our hearts were darkened. Our thinking became futile. The lights went out for us as a race. And so he goes on then in verse 24. uh, Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, kind of our fallen flesh, um, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So catch this, he says the first result of rejecting the truth about God is spiritual confusion. We create gods in our own image that allow us to do what we want to do. But that's not the end of the story because spiritual confusion will always lead to sexual confusion. So the first result is spiritual confusion. The second result is sexual confusion. And historically, there's always a a close tie between idolatry and immorality. And so verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now catch this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There we are again, the core sin, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, he's gonna talk now, okay, so there's sexual confusion, but let's take that to the next level. He says, because of this, God gave them over, like you wanna reject the truth? Okay, I'll let you go, uh, to shameful lusts. And he said, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for un. Natural one, so he introduces this topic of same sex relationships, homosexuality, and he says in the same way, the men also imba- uh, abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another now it 's interesting because in the Greek, what it literally says is it says that uh, the men uh, that they um, they abandoned uh, the relationships that were according to nature. In other words, when you reject the truth about who God is, you lose the truth about who you are. It's fairly obvious, just looking at human bodies, how they are, if there's a creator, it's fairly obvious how our bodies have been designed to go together. But he says that what happened is that this confusion led to a breakdown of understanding of God's vision of sexuality. And he said, so what happened is now they're against nature. Now it's interesting, Uh, today we're not doing a deep dive uh, into kind of what the Bible teaches about uh, human sexuality, Um, about same-sex relationships, about gender theory. But I do want to point one thing out, just a quick sidebar, because we're here in Romans 1. Uh, There are those, in fact, there are those in the church uh, that claim to be followers of Jesus, that claim to to love his word, that would argue here that this passage in Romans 1 is not really describing what we describe as same-sex relationships today, that it's describing kind of promiscuous homosexuality. But as you can see from that text, that so Paul is not talking about promiscuous sexuality. He's talking about sex that is against nature, against the Creator's design. All right? So, all through the New Testament teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the Bible, in general, the teaching of the apostles, is that God's vision for sexuality, his design has always been one man for one woman for a lifetime of love and commitment, what we call marriage, in order to create a safe environment in which children would grow up and thrive in a healthy family. And that any sex outside of that is against the created order. So it doesn't matter what's premarital, extramarital, same sex, it's all outside and therefore destructive and against the creator's design. Anyway, so Paul goes on and he says now in the middle of verse 27, he says, so men committed shameful acts with other men and catch this, they received in themselves the due penalty for their heir. And so what he's saying is whether we realize it or not, that sexuality outside of God's uh, design, one man, one woman, is always destructive both for us and for the, the culture, the community at large. Now, that's not the end of the story though. So We reject the truth about God, the first result is spiritual confusion, which leads to sexual confusion, but that's not the end of the story. The final stage is what we call social confusion, the breakdown of human culture, the breakdown in human relationships. And so Paul says that because we do not retain the truth of God, he's gonna give us over to now a depraved mind to do things that we ought not to do, and he's gonna give us a long list of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but often when you get to a long list like this, it's easy just to skim over them, read them quickly without really thinking it through. But as we read through this long list of sins, social sins, what I want you to do is I want you to picture a family that's characterized by these sins. I want you to picture maybe an extended family characterized by these sins. Picture a business or a corporation, a club that's characterized by these sins. Picture a culture or a country that's full of these sins, and you will see the devastating effect of rejecting the truth about God and how it eventually leads to the breakdown of our entire culture. And honestly, as I read this passage today, it feels like I'm reading the newspaper, reading a blog. It's like a a description of what's happening uh, uh, as a result of this warfare in the unseen realm in our culture today. And so let's see what he says. He says in verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So once again, there's the core sin, this rejection of the truth. So God gave them over. You don't want the truth? I'll give you over to your depraved minds so that they will do what they ought not to be done. Now here comes the list. He says they have become filled, not just a little bit, but like a cup, filled to the top with every kind of wickedness. A picture of family, picture an extended family, picture a business, whatever. They're full of, uh, they become uh, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, of murder, of strife, of deceit, and malice. They're gossips. They're slanderers. Again, picture a family. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they know because God has written his law in their heart that this is wrong. They not only continue to do these very things but they also approve of those who practice them. Did you catch that? Not only do they practice them, they celebrate those who practice them. We've come to a point where good becomes evil and evil becomes good. Where light is called darkness and darkness becomes light. Does it sound familiar? So Paul says, this is the core sin of the human race. We've rejected the truth about God revealed in creation. We've created gods in our own image that allow us to do what we want to do. And God has given us this over and it leads to this downward spiral of spiritual confusion that leads to sexual confusion, that leads to social chaos. So it's a powerful passage and so appropriate for our culture right now. But what I want to do today is use it to highlight and illustrate what I'm talking about spiritual, when I talk about spiritual warfare at the highest level, at the level of ideas. And what I want to do today is just from this passage, pull out three big picture ideas, worldview ideas that influence the way we see life. And what we're going to see is if Satan can control the way a culture thinks, if he can control the way you and I think at a high level, he can control us and we will never win. The battle. In fact, if we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, it has to include not just personal truth, but philosophical, big picture, worldview type truth. All right, so let's jump in. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Spiritual Warfare, the War of Ideas. So let's jump in. So the first big picture uh, idea that I want to talk about, that kind of flows out of this passage, is the the big picture idea, the worldview idea of naturalism. Now, I know this is a, a you know kind of a kind of a big topic, right? Sounds very philosophical, appropriate, um, but I think it's very important that we th- learn to think as Christians in this kind of big picture way. Um, if you were here, the very first week of this series, we talked about naturalism. So let what, what do I mean by naturalism? Naturalism is not just a big picture uh, idea, it is a worldview, and it's one of the most dominant worldviews in our culture today here in Western society. So at the core, what, is, what does naturalism teach? What does it believe? Well, naturalism teaches that the universe, the cosmos, is all there is that there is no God, there is no spiritual realm, like an unseen realm that we're talking about, that that kind of physical nature is all there is. And so all that there is, all that we can see, um, including ourselves, is just the result of the kind of forces of nature and uh, billions of years of random accident, working together in the process, uh, in case of living life of, uh, kind of a biological life in terms of natural selection to create the complexity, the beauty, um, the, the world that we see today. Now, this is like I said, one of the one of the most dominant worldviews of our time. You see it everywhere. But what many people do not realize is that this worldview, this big picture idea that there is no creator, that there's just a cosmos and the cosmos has self-generated, has created itself, has tremendous implications, not just for nature, but for all of life. Because the reality is, if there is no creator, then there is no ultimate source of truth. There is no ultimate source of right and wrong. There is no ultimate source of purpose or meaning or significance in life. And what it means is that a culture that buys into naturalism is free to redefine good and evil, right and wrong, purpose and meaning as they go. Now, what Paul is saying in Romans 1 is this goes back to the core sin of the human race. Because what Paul says is it's impossible if you look at this creation that's so large and so powerful and so intricate and so complicated and so beautiful and so complex and creative, it's impossible to look at this amazing creation and not see that there is a creator. In fact, he says, this is so obvious, if you have an open mind, that to deny it, uh, there is, for, it for the person who denies it, there will be no excuse. Now, it's interesting. Uh, we started the day with this story, and it's a true story, about this ship that uh, is blown by the winds, violent storm from, um, from Africa. They end up uh, off the southern tip of Greece in this little uh, island, Aniketheira. And, uh, and so while they're there, the years 1900s is spring, and there it's a commercial it's a commercial ship, and so they decide to uh, just to, to uh, send a diver down and see if there's any marketable sponges down below. And so when he gets down there, he sees these uh, the skeleton, and of course the captain follows up and goes down. You, you know I've told you the story, but when he goes down there, uh, he not only sees the horses, but what he sees blows his mind. Because what he's discovered on the bottom of the ocean is a Roman cargo ship from over 2000 years to 100 years before the time of Christ. And scattered there on the ocean floor, they will discover in the coming months, 100, over 100 exquisite Greco-Roman um, uh, statues made of bronze and marble. And so when the captain goes down and discovers this, this this kicks off a full-scale investigation by the Greek government for the next two years. And while they're exploring underwater, they come across this mysterious mechanism. It's, It's 13 inches high, it is seven inches wide, and it's three and a half inches thick. It's covered with barnacles. But when they take off the barnables, barnacles, they found this this beautiful, um, beautiful mechanism, a box made of bronze. And when they open it up, it's full of intricate gears. And on the outside are inscribed over 3,000 letters in Greek. And it takes them a while to figure out what this mechanism is. But when they finally figure it out, they have discovered the oldest scientific device ever discovered. And what it it turns out that it was, uh, we would describe it today as sort of their version of an analog computer. And this device was designed to be able to predict the motion of planets and to predict solar eclipses. And in 1978, so 78 years later, the last expedition to go down and check out this site uh, was from England, Jacques Cousteau, the famous oceanographer was on this, uh, on this particular voyage. Um, but there was also a professor from the University of Cardiff in the United Kingdom. His name was Michael Edmonds and he was a professor of astronomy and of physics. And he described this device, the Anakathera device, he described it as exquisite, as beautiful, as remarkable, and catch this, as 100% accurate in predicting the movement of the planets in solar eclipses. He said that in terms of historical value, it was more valuable than the Mona Lisa. Hanging in the Louvre in Paris. Now, let me ask you a question. So, if I were to tell you that after discovering this advice and that a panel of experts has spent years taking it apart, seeing how it works, the intricacies of all the gears, the parts holding together, they they finally figured out this is incredible that the 3,000 Greek letters were actually the instructions on how to use the device. And if I were to tell you that after years and years of study, a group of scientists, and experts, came to the conclusion that this device just came together, underwater, over the course of millions of years, that somehow, in ways we don't understand, that metal was formed, and then these sheets of metal were worn down by the sands of time underwater. And then from these sheets of metal that gears were formed and somehow an incredible way these gears came together and then the interlocking pieces that would hold the gears together came together to create this incredibly beautiful and unbelievably brilliant machine to protect that that can uh, predict the motion of planets. And that more than that, that then as this mechanism just tumbled through the ocean for millions of more years that etchings were made that turned out to be 3,000 Greek letters that were just formed perfectly explained how the mechanism worked, you would look at me and say that I am crazy. You would say that's impossible. And yet the reality is that if you were to study science and nature today, what you would discover is that this universe is so finely tuned, whether it's on a cosmic uh, cosmic level or whether it's at the micro level of nanobiology, that the machinery of nature, the complexity of nature is so much many times over the complexity of that one and a device. And that this complexity is a functional complexity, that just like with that device, that, that if you just take one gear out, the whole thing fails. That nature is that way. You take out one piece, the whole thing falls apart in all these different levels of creativity. And Paul says, hey, anyone with an open mind can see the obvious that the incredible design in nature points to a designer. But here's the thing, and this is what I want you to catch. If you can control how a culture thinks about creation and if you can remove the need for a creator, you can control that culture because you can rob them of truth you can rob them of morals right and wrong and ethics you can rob them of meaning you can rob them of significance and you can make up the rules and the only rule and the only that matters is who's in power because their rules will win you can destroy the entire culture with that one big picture thought So my purpose today in this is not to convince you uh, or make a case for intelligent design. But let me tell you this, that the case is there to be made. And in fact, if this is kind of up your alley, I've put uh, three books there that I would highly recommend. They talk about the, int- uh, the int- uh, intricacies of nature at the macro level, that first book there, uh, Creator in the Cosmos. The next two on just uh, the intricacies of the way life works, the way nature works at the, down to the nano level. Um, very helpful resources. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about naturalism or really any of the major worldviews that control our world today, the last book on the list, Universe Next Door. Extremely helpful. But my, my goal today is not to make a case for intelligent design, My goal today is to see that if, to understand the importance of big picture ideas. If you can control a way a culture thinks, you control the culture. And if you can convince them that the lie is a truth, you can destroy that culture. Now, the second example of a big picture truth or a big picture issue that that flows out of this passage, a big picture idea, is the concept of spirituality. So what Paul said today is that that when we reject the truth about God revealed in creation, it sets off a chain reaction. And the first result is that when we get rid of God, we need to create new gods. Uh, He says that, that when we reject the truth about God revealed in nature, that our thinking becomes futile. Like we look at all this complexity at the nano level to the macro level and we say it just happened by itself, by accident over time. And a whole culture buys into that. We lose our mind. We profess ourselves to become wise, we become fools. But he says it's not just at the level of creation that when we reject the truth that the lights go out Our thinking becomes futile, our foolish minds are darkened, and what that happens in the realm of spiritual life is that we begin to create gods in our own image that will allow us to do what we want to do. Now, here in Western culture, there are very few, I mean percentage-wise, It'd be a small number of people here in Western culture that are are worshiping pagan gods. It happens today, it's growing today. But but percentage-wise, it would be small that worship pagan gods and worship them through idols as spiritual kind of hot points, places to connect with these gods. But what we see here in our culture is the same dynamic, that we create gods in our own image. We create spiritualities in our own image that allow us to do what we want. And the gods come out like us, or in some cases, we are the God. And And I wanna give you just a quick example. Like in our culture today, one of the most prevalent spiritual ideas when it comes to spirituality, to God and spirituality, one of the most common ideas is that 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 all paths lead to the same place. That it doesn't really matter whether you worship Yahweh or Allah or Jesus or Buddha or the great spirit in the sky. It doesn't really matter because they're, they're all really just different names for the same being or the same person. Or that all paths will end up leading to the same place. And it's just another great example of what Paul is saying is that when you reject the truth about God, reveal the nature, the lights go out spiritually because it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like in our culture today, the idea is you do what you wanna believe, I believe what I wanna believe, and as long as it works for you and as long as you're sincere, as long as you don't push it on me, then we're good because all paths will lead to the same place. But the reality is, it just makes no sense at all. It's another illustration of professing ourselves to be wise and becoming foolish. Now you stop and think about, it. if you ever study world religions, if you ever study uh, New Age philosophy, uh, if you ever study the cults, what you will find is that it, it is true that often there's a lot of similarities between many religions when it comes to the morals or the ethics or the value of love or things like that. And of course this makes sense because what Paul says in Romans one and then in Romans two is that we're created in the image of our creator and he's written his law on our hearts. And so it makes sense that around the world you would see some similarities as people respond to that truth written on their hearts. But what you will find is when it comes to the big picture ideas, of of what God is like, who is God, is there a God, is God even uh, a personal God, or is just a force? When it comes to who we are as human beings, when it comes to Jesus and who Jesus is, the meaning of his life, his death and resurrection, uh, when it comes to uh, the nature of reality, when it comes to the path to life or the path to salvation, what you find is that as you compare these different religions and cults and new age and so on, that they have vastly different answers to these big questions of life and often diametrically opposed. And so obviously they can't all be right. But here's what I want you to catch. If you can convince an entire culture that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, you rob from that culture any need to search from the truth because what we all believe is equally true. And once you do that, you can remove the need from the human heart to search after the true God, the only God who's there, the God who can rescue us. Again, it's spiritual warfare at the highest level. You, can, you get a culture to buy into that, you control the culture. A third example. The third example of a big picture idea that flows out of this passage is sexuality. And so Paul says that when we lose the truth about our creator we lose the truth about ourselves. And he says one of the most important places you see this confusion working out is in terms of our sexuality. Now it's interesting because if you look at our culture today I think if you were to say, what is the prevailing moral of our culture? Like how do we look at sexuality? Not everyone would agree with this, but I think most people would agree kind of with this basic idea that all sex is good sex as long as it involves consenting adults. All right, so if you don't agree with me, just try telling someone that a certain kind of sex is wrong and see what the response is. This is the predominant view in our culture today. And yet, Paul says, and and the promise is, the promise is, is that this new path to this new sexuality will lead to freedom. In fact, we've gone so far as a culture that we've said, hey, we need to separate out the concepts of gender and sexuality so that we can no longer be restricted by the biological realities of our body, that we can redefine ourselves. We don't want anyone, let alone a creator, telling us we're male or female. We want to redefine our own reality when it comes to sexuality. And of course, in all of these issues, the constant message is this'll bring freedom, right? This this will bring joy. But as we've seen, uh, this will bring health to the culture if we just all embrace this new sexuality. But this has been going on for the last you know, 50, 60 years since the sexual revolution. And as you look at the statistics, you look at the impact of our culture, you look at the rise of suicide, you just look at our culture as a whole, this does not bring freedom, it brings the loss of freedom. As Paul says, that we degrade ourselves and we lose our own lives. It leads to destruction. And this is why Jesus, the apostles, the Bible is just so clear that if we are going to be transformed, be renewed in the image of our creator, that one of the first steps is to reject the world's view of sexuality and to embrace the creator's vision. But here's what I want you to catch if you can convince an entire culture that all sexuality is good sexuality, as long as it's with consenting adults, you can destroy that culture. So what I want you to catch, there's just three examples. Of course, there are many, many more. We could talk about, we could be here forever. These are just three examples of what I'm talking about, spiritual warfare at the highest level, at the level of idea. If you can control how a culture thinks, you can control the culture. And so it leads to a very important question for our life. There in your note sheet, in this final section, it says spiritual warfare, one key question So here's the question. Are you winning the war of ideas? In your life, as a follower of Jesus, are you winning this war of ideas? You know, last week, uh, I introduced a passage, a very famous passage from the Apostle Paul. It's in Romans chapter 12. And I put it there on your note sheet again. In Romans 12, Paul says, well, first of all, let me set it up. Uh, We've just studied Romans chapter one, as Paul begins to bring his case against the human race. This is why we're so messed up. We've rejected the truth of God revealed in creation. It's led, to, it's led to spiritual confusion, sexual confusion, and the breakdown of society, societal confusion. And then in the middle of the book of Romans, he begins to talk about God's solution, the sending of Jesus to, to bear the penalty for our sin so he could be forgiven, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit to restore us. But when he gets to chapter 12, he turns a corner and he begins to say practically, okay, so you know the story of our race. Now, where do we go from here? As followers of Jesus, where do we go from here? And so in chapter 12, he says, do not conform to this what? to this world. He says, do not conform to this world. We We just gave three examples of how the world thinks, naturalism, spirituality, sexuality. He says, do not be conformed. He said, but be transformed. This is always God's vision, that we be transformed to be like our creator, like Jesus. And he says, but this happens by the renewing of your what? Your mind. And again, not just on a personal level, not just a doctoral, but a worldview level. And he says, then, once your mind is renewed, you'll be able to test and approve. I love the word demonstrate or experience. You'll be able to demonstrate or experience what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you've come to Jesus. You were once part of a rebel race. You've been rescued by Christ. You've received the gift of his spirit. So now it's time to be transformed. And the way you do that is you cannot be conformed to the way this world thinks. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as your mind is changed, you'll begin to experience God's incredible will for your life. It's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect, but you have to have your mind transformed, renewed. Now, if you are here on week three of this series, we went to Ephesians chapter two and we talked about the big three enemies that we have to defeat if we're gonna win the spiritual battle. It was the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as we broke down each of those three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, I introduced you to a scholar by the name of Clinton Arnold. He's a New Testament scholar. He's the dean of students at Biola he, uh, University here in Southern California. He writes a lot on the topic of spiritual warfare, both from a scholarly and a kind of a, a popular level. And so, in that, in that uh, chapter, in chapter two of Ephesians, uh, Clinton Arnold, in his commentary, his scholarly commentary on Ephesians 2, he describes what it means when we talk about the world the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I put a quote here from that commentary. This is what he says. The age of this world, that's a quote from Ephesians 2, is the unhealthy and ungodly, now catch this, social, cultural, economic, and political environment in which we live. It represents organized evil in the form of peer pressure, ideologies like naturalism, right, uh, systems and structures that provide us with a script for a living life totally apart from God and his purposes. And this is what we've seen today. Three examples, right? Naturalism, this version of spirituality, this version of sexuality, these are scripts. This is how you should live. You live as if there's no creator. You make up your own rules. You make up your own right. You make up your own uh, wrong. You create a God in your image. You live sexually any way you want to. Whatever you think will make you happy. This is the message our world is giving to us 24 seven. And Clinton Arnold says that is the world. And if we're going to be transformed We have to be transformed, not just at a level of our personal relationship with God, and not, as we'll talk about in the future, of just our doctoral understanding, but we have to be transformed at the level of these big picture ideologies that Satan uses to control our culture. So the question I have for you is, are you winning the war? What determines what you believe about life? Is it the word of God that is reshaping your mind in areas like creation and spirituality and sexuality and a million other areas, right? Like he said, politics, economics, ideologies. Is it the word of God that's shaping your mind Is your mind being conformed to Christ or is your mind being conformed to the culture? Here's the thing unless we learn to win the war of ideas, our minds will never be renewed and we will never be transformed and experience the will of God that's good, pleasing, and perfect. Let's pray. Fathers, we come today, we just feel a need for your spirit. God, our world is, is pressing in around us increasingly. And as followers of Jesus, Lord, we need, we, we need to rise up and be a light in a dark place, which will take tremendous courage, but also tremendous clarity. And so, God, we pray that this week, as we examine our lives, perhaps as we do the summer study, that you would help us to see where our minds are being more conformed to the culture than to Christ and how that's robbing us of the transformation that you came and died to give us. And so, Father, we pray that as we bring our lives, like this song says, we'd pour out our heart to you as an offering and that you would teach us what is true. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.